We're going to be taking our Bibles this morning for a Bible study. Thank you so much, Susie. I, uh, I'm always amazed by reed instruments and how something such great sound comes out of something so tiny. And it's just, I know there's bigger reed instruments as well, but it's sounded really amazing. Uh, the gentlemen are handing out some notes this morning, if you would like them. There were some in the bulletin as well. And we're going to find our way to the Gospel of John this morning. The Gospel of John. I'm one of those individuals, I, I like brain puzzles, I like puns, I like wordplay, I like different challenges in my, my life just to be thinking about things. And some of the teens know that, don't worry Sharon, I already put it on silent, but thank you for checking. She was checking my cell phone to see if it was on silent. Um, but I, I enjoy those, those different wordplays, paradoxes, to just have to sit, think, contemplate. And uh, when we come to John chapter 1, we're going to see a paradox in, in the scriptures that we'll talk about in a few moments. But what has happened, I think, too often is that paradoxes, they become, uh, we, we hear them so often or we hear statements that we uh, tend to just find them as trite. You know, that if we don't learn from history, we're only, you know, doomed or failed to repeat it. Uh, that actions speak louder than words and uh, you cannot not communicate. Uh, when you start thinking about some of those different word plays and, and paradoxes that are out there, um, they, they really just get you thinking and saying, okay, what about these things that seem contradictory to each other? You know, I can't imagine learning our language sometimes when you start talking about jumbo shrimp or why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways, things like that. I just, I find that, find that interesting. And uh, the more you know, the more you don't know. Th- those different things that as we start thinking about in life, what happens? But when we look at the scriptures and we look at the word of God, there are theological paradoxes as well that we come to and we look and we say, hey, the, they don't totally seem to go together. And yet we know that God in his wisdom and his divine plan and his sovereignty, he's well aware. How do we wrestle with him and reconcile that man has a free will, the ability to, to ask Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins and to have that choice. But yet at the same time, knowing that God is in complete control of all, all things he chooses to be in control of, that he is providential. How do we reconcile the, the joy and the sorrow? And even in the midst of trials, having joy and yet being sorrowful, how do we, we wrestle that God is just, that he will not allow sin to go unpunished, and yet at times he's very merciful. And he allows us to, to go into our sinful ways, and yet he has not punished us yet. How do we reconcile that in Christ, the Bible says, the weak are made strong, the poor are made rich. And yet we look around and say, it just doesn't seem to make sense. How do we, how do we reconcile that God is, he is imminent, that he is close, that he's a personal God. He's not just a God who's out there. And he's off in a distance, but he's a personal God who wants to interact and, and be relating into our lives. And as we, as we go into John chapter 1, we're going to see a theological paradox and yet a practical paradox that, that comes in the area of grace and truth. Allow me to introduce you to another paradox, one that some of you, you thoroughly enjoy this. Some of us do not, but we go to these places because our family enjoys those types of things. Thus said the beach. I, my wife knows, my family knows, I am not a beach lover. I, there's, there's too much sand. There's too much sand. And sand goes into places that sand ought not be going. And I just, I am not, not a fan. And yet, when you go to the beach, do you find yourself at times, for those of you who enjoy it, it's relaxing. You hear the wind. 
You hear the seagulls off in the distance. You hear the waves crashing, and some of you are going to start falling asleep now as we start, as we start thinking about that. And it has this alluring aspect that, that brings you closer and closer to the ocean. And you find it peaceful. You find it serene. You find it to be this place of relaxation. And yet, as you get closer to that ocean, you're reminded, as you look out at the waves and the graceful movement of the waves, you're reminded of the danger, the power of the ocean. The sea creatures that are in there poking, that really, they want to attack you the moment you step in. I'm convinced of it. I fish in the ocean. I know what's in there. I don't want to put my feet in there. You know, you're convinced of the jellyfish that are going to sting you. But there, there is danger with the ocean. When we were there, uh, we went for a day trip the other last week. And they're warning about rip currents. And, and you can feel yourself being pulled out. And if you're not aware, you're being swept away. Well, we, we decided Sharon wanted some nice seashells and some little white stones for the, for the house to make his decoration. So we started to collect all these little, little st- st- shells and stones. Try and say that five times fast. Um, but trying to collect them all. And we're reaching down and we're picking them up and looking. And uh, I'm, I'm very blind when I don't have my glasses on. And so to look down and to see like how... I have to get like all the way down. And you know what's coming in. is That, that wave is coming. Well, we were looking and I wasn't thinking about it. And I simply decided to leave my glasses on. And I'm looking down, and I'm going, and I'm going, and I was very quickly reminded of the power and the danger of the ocean and the cost of that beach. To go onto that beach, it cost me $300. (laughs) And now there's a stylish ocean fish somewhere wearing a pair of Oakleys that are out in the ocean because as that wave came crashing in, I was reminded that though it seemed like a peaceful place, there is danger, there is peril at the beach. Long story short, don't go to the beach. But... uh, (laughs) You can go if you want. But there's, there's that aspect where when we start looking at things in life, there are times that things don't seem to fit, and yet they beautifully fit together. And in John chapter 1, there, there are two, two words that are given, grace and truth, in verse 14, that when we, when we uh, take them and we pull them apart, we can look at them and they would not seem to fit. And yet they fit beautifully together in this, in this passage. So as we, as we go there, it's, the Bible says, and the word was made flesh. The word is talking about Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 1, the word, uh, the word of God is the, was the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was made flesh. He left heaven, came to earth, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what do we learn quickly from this, this verse? It says, the word was made flesh, it dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus Christ left heaven to live as a man with mankind. So Jesus Christ beautifully leaves heaven, humbles himself, even to the point, as we've heard this morning, to death on the cross. He, we, it says, we beheld his glory. The glory is the idea of the sum total of what can be known about an individual or a place so the, the sum total, when we look at the glory of God, we can look at throughout scriptures and see that the person, the power, that Jesus Christ was in the flesh, the pure power, the pure aspect of God in the flesh. He was and is God. He was not just a, a good human being who happened to be walking on planet earth and had a lot of following. He left heaven and became the total manifestation of God in the flesh. 
What's interesting is it says, as we beheld his glory, we noticed something about him, that he was full of grace and truth, that Jesus was the grace of God on display. The most gracious gift that could ever be given to humankind was Jesus Christ, that God the Father would send his only begotten son to earth to die on the cross for your sins and mine. That's God's ultimate display of grace. And yet, while he's graciously living on the world, in the earth, he was displaying and declaring the truth of God concerning salvation. So Jesus Christ living here ends up being total truth and grace. The conflict of truth and grace does not come because they are incompatible. It does not come, the paradox is not there because because God was maybe sometimes grace and sometimes truth. No, Jesus Christ was 100% grace, 100% truth the entire time. The incompatibility or the difficulty comes when we get in the way, when we lack the perspective that we need to have as believers on how to resolve the paradox of grace and truth. So as we look this morning, we want to we look at this idea of grace and truth. And we want to apply it specifically this morning to our responsibility as believers in the area of evangelism, in the area of outreach. Why, do we, why should we have this heart for people who do not know Jesus Christ? If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks and you've been paying attention to the series of, or the, the different messages that have been preached by the different preachers over those last couple of weeks, it's very interesting to note pastor does not give direct orders on, I want you to preach on this, I want you to preach on this. And if we hold to a very providential view of God, knowing that God is in control, he is well aware of what is happening and even directing, it's been interesting to me to note that messages over the last couple of weeks to our church, the power of the gospel, the importance, the, the, the entrusting in it as we go forward and share the gospel, that we, that we learn about the idea of missions and evan- or evangelism is to be the heart of our mission that we are to be walking worthy and to walk as God would have us to walk. And then even Wednesday night, being told about Great Commission living. When over half of the messages in this short period have been about evangelism, have been about sharing the gospel and the mission being our mission, could it be like the Old Testament when the prophets would come and keep smacking Israel upside the head? then maybe it's time we uh, maybe listen? Is God trying to tell something to us as a body of believers? Maybe we need to fix or work on something. Maybe we need to develop this passion of grace and truth to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. So what can we learn about grace and truth, especially in regard to our evangelistic heartbeat? As we look at this passage, as we look at the Gospel of John here this morning, what is God trying to tell us and how can we do this? Have you ever felt like these people, you know, you're on a teeter-totter and you're there and there's this person, sadly, through most of my life and childhood, I was that guy on the right, you know, and nobody wanted to do the teeter-totter with me because it would take three or four of them to even get me up and to go. When we look at the, the idea of grace and truth, we have to find the balance, But what has happened in the history of churches, especially in the American church recently in the last few decades, we've noticed that there is a shift that has occurred in the areas of grace and truth. That we find churches and and believers wanting to be on one side or the other. 
rather than finding the balance that Jesus Christ came with, that he came full of grace and truth, that we in our ministry, we in our evangelism, we in our personal lives, we must be about grace and truth. So what happens in, the, in a quick historical background, total grace, when somebody would swing the pendulum to, to being our ministry is just going to be about grace, our ministry is just going to be about meeting, meeting social needs and meeting important needs, what we have is theologically, it's often called what's, what's known as liberation theology, which they argue this, that salvation consists of and deliverance from the exploitation of the powerless and the class oppression that is there. We need, to, we need to bring people from class oppression and class warfare, and we need to give them a better lot in life. And if we can do that, if we can make their life a little bit better, then, then we've accomplished our gospel mission. The, the term that came out of that through the 60s into the 70s is the term the social gospel. It has close ties to, to, the, uh, to liberation theology. But what's interesting is that it states that salvation is not something that you and I can possess, that we can have. But rather, it's simply something that we can give to help people move, to help people get a little bit better, to move them from their negative state of affairs to more of a positive state of affairs. And as you, as you look at this concept of total grace, these individuals have been saved from their social ills in their society. We've given them water to drink. We fed the hungry. We've clothed those who did not have clothing. We, we helped to, to liberate maybe a nation and, and we've really done something great and gave them their freedom. Are all those things good and important? Absolutely. We ought not to be turning a negative eye or a blind eye to meeting some of those needs. But when we have grace without truth, the, the long-term outworking, and, I, and I'm going to give us the extremes on the, on the, the teeter-totter here. The extreme of grace without truth, it breeds deception to, to make people think they're okay. And yet, if we understand our salvation, we understand the gospel, and that in our sinfulness, we are doomed and, and destined to a place called hell because of our sin and the payment has to be made. We're deceiving them, saying, hey, you're okay, you've been saved from this. It produces moral compromise, that we don't want to stand for truth, that we don't want to, to do that. With, without the truth, the joy of forgiveness is unrealized. We need people to understand they're destitute, that they are depraved before God, that they need their sins to be forgiven. So to end on an idea of full grace, is, uh, it's, it's not in a good place. And if we are finding ourselves there, if you're saying, well, all I need to do is just make people feel better. I don't really want to step on toes. I really don't want to have to get into some of those nitty-gritty, scary parts of the gospel to talk about sin and, and hell and some of the, the damnation that comes with it. We're going to find ourselves in moral compromise. We're, not, we're going to end up changing our gospel. And we need, if you, if you find yourself there, you need a good, good dose of truth. Because the Bible clearly lays out what the gospel is and what needs to take place. On the flip side is this idea of total truth. If we end up here on this idea of total truth, what has happened is it's a reaction to the concepts of the social gospel, to the concept of liberation theology that says, no, we don't need to meet needs. All people need to do is get saved. Now, is there truth there? Absolutely. Do people need to get saved? Absolutely. Do they need to experience those things in order to have a whole salvation? Absolutely not. A person can get saved without, without meriting or feeling any gracious acts by anybody. What's, uh, what's interesting is it looks at people, and this is, again, this is a bit of a straw man, but I'm, I'm going to the full ends to get us to think through what happens if we're only about truth and we say we don't need to be about grace. 
What the, what the people need is they need the gospel of Jesus. So let them get saved. And if they happen to die because of starvation or overdoses, well, at least they're going to be in heaven. So at least, at least we got that done. That's, I, don't, I don't think we ought to be there as believers. We ought to be caring about where people are at. We ought to be caring about the abortions that happen. We ought to be caring about the overdoses that are becoming more and more rampant in our society, about the, the, the alcoholism that is, that is plaguing us, about the homeless. I, I believe we ought to be, to be looking at those. The, 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 the full truth or the total truth, they focus on soul winning, and it's so much so they, they, their soul focus is on the winning rather than on the soul. And, and what are we about? Are we about people? And are we about them moving them toward the idea of grace, that they need Jesus Christ? Do you find yourself saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to take part in a ministry. I'm not going to do anything unless I can share the gospel. Because that's all that's important. It it doesn't matter if my, my neighbor down the street has a need. It doesn't matter that the tree just fell into their yard, crushed their fence, ruined the swing set. But you know what? That's their choice. But they need Jesus. So hopefully they'll come to church sometime. Or do we look and say, hey, we have to be about both ends need to be about helping, showing truth. We often focus so much on the knowledge of truth that the total truther spends copious amounts of time soaking in the Word of God. Should we be doing that? Absolutely. Should we be about knowing the Word of God? Absolutely. But if we are just a sponge that soaks it in and soaks it in and soaks it in and soaks it in, and we never allow ourselves to be squeezed out with the gospel, there is a problem biblically, and there is a problem in our heart. We ought to and need to, if we truly believe in the grace of Jesus Christ to save people from their sins, then we need to be about sharing and being squeezed out the grace and the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. They love studying scripture and theology so much, but are sometimes quick to judge and slow to forgive. They're strong on truth. They're weak on grace. They need a dose of God's grace. And what's interesting, just having been in the church for all these years now, we have both spectrums in our church. I've been in conversations with people who are total truthers and people who are total gracers. For, and and those aren't even technical terms. You know, they're just there. We need to be looking and saying, what did Jesus Christ come? Is there a way that I can look and say, I don't want my truth to just breed self-righteousness and crushing legalism. But I don't want my grace to just be this this mamby-pamby gospel where I never share and talk about the real truth of what Jesus Christ came to do. We must stand for biblical truth. I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying we need to change our gospel, that we need to do something different, that we need to just totally abandon truth. We need to stand for truth, and we must not compromise the gospel. But is it possible to embrace both grace and truth in a biblical balance? And I believe yes. I believe according to the scriptures, as we look through the gospel of John this morning in a very expedited fashion, can we merit or demonstrate both grace and truth? Grace and truth are the wings of the gospel. Just like a bird cannot fly with one wing, it is grounded. So is the gospel when we do not demonstrate grace and truth. That we do not graciously care for somebody enough to share the truth. That we look and we're just, the only time we talk to our neighbor is to simply invite them to church. That's the only time we're going to talk to them. We don't have time for them any other time. 
Or do we look and say, I need to be about finding that balance of grace and truth? We're going to look at what are called the sign miracles quickly this morning. Why would we look at these miracles? Herbert Lockyer wrote a book called All the Miracles of the Bible. He said this, the majority of miracles were acts of mercy as well as emblems of redemption, showing us and pointing us to something. They're parables of grace. Miracles have a twofold value, both a physical and a spiritual. And as we look at the sign miracles this morning in the Gospel of John, I want you to think about the physical or the, the, the needs that Christ met and also the spiritual truth that he conveyed as we look through it. D.A. Carson, a guy who's more brilliant than I'll ever be, said, Signs are not mere displays of power, but are symbol-laden events Rich in meaning for those with eyes to see. He's saying these signs that we're going to look at, they're pointing to something greater. They were not an end in ourselves, in themselves, and neither should our grace be an end in itself. We need to be moving toward, toward the truth of God's word. I think John says it best. At the end of his book, in chapter 20, he says, many other signs did Jesus uh, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life through his name. As we look through these, and you're here today maybe, and you're not sure you're saved, you don't know about the saving power of Jesus Christ, these signs were written with the intent of us understanding that that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, come with the purpose to save us from our sins. To look today at these sign miracles and say, okay, what, what are these signs? Signs are miracles designed to point beyond themselves to doctrinal truth. John specifically uses the Greek word simeon or uh, sign, whereas in the other gospels they use for miracles, they use the word dunamis or power or miracle. He uses a specific word because he wants us to understand that these miracles that we're going to look at were pointing to something greater. They were gracious acts that happened with the intent of pointing to truth. Christ was gracious. There's no way about it in his actions, but he was also concerned with the deeper spiritual truths that accompanied these signs. He often accompanied these miracles with some sort of teaching or a sermon as we're going to, we're going to have it in our notes, but not always. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a, in a second. Signs were not important, not as important as the clear gospel. The sign was not an end in itself. Jesus was concerned, and we ought to be as well, with the souls of mankind. But these signs, these gracious acts, did help to authenticate the message in the messenger. Now what happens in theology and churches today is, well, well that's right, it, it happened It authenticated the message of Jesus Christ. It authenticated him as God in the flesh and the apostles as the messengers. And so that's why these things happen. Absolutely. But in our society today, in America, yes, founded as a Bible nation, God-fearing people, we don't live in a Christian nation per se anymore. Our nation is becoming more and more secularized. You only have to look around. You only have to listen to understand that. And we need to be about authenticating our message, being real, being genuine. Not just looking and saying, we have some words that you need to hear, but we need to be demonstrating grace to our neighbors, to our family. Demonstrating kindness and love and respect with the intent of moving toward truth. Because we need to authenticate the message that we so dearly believe and hold true and hold fast to. We need to be about sharing this message. 
in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, it talks about that this sign that occurred, it didn't guarantee belief, which is important for us to understand as we talk about grace and truth. You don't just do grace solely if people are going to believe. We do things, acts of grace and kindness and love and respect to people because there are people who need some of those things. That we're reaching out in the love and the respect and the admiration of Jesus Christ because they are made in the image of God. And we ought to be doing things for people in in our neighborhood, in our uh, communities, in order with the intent of demonstrating the truth of Jesus Christ. People at times were simply beneficiaries of God's grace. To look and say, well, if I can't share the gospel with them, I'm not going to help them. Why? There, there are times that Jesus helped people, and he simply helped people. Long term, with establishing a foundation, with the goal of truth. But to look and say, we need to be about grace and truth. It seems to be a paradox. And yet, when we, when we perspective, if we take that right perspective, we can look at it. Jesus demonstrated grace ultimately to provide truth. Why should we do something like a neighborhood night? To be gracious and respectful to our community. Ultimately, it is to provide truth. It is not just to have a block party. It is not just so we can spend time setting up a bunch of games and making cupcakes and chili and having a good old time. There ought to be intentionality to what we are doing. To look and say, we want to present truth. We want to ultimately have a foundation with our neighborhood, with our community, that they know that we care. To look and to provide truth. So let's look at those sign miracles quickly. And I am going to assume lots of knowledge here. If you are not familiar, let me encourage you to go back this week and read through these different sign miracles. John chapter 2 is the very first sign that we have. In John chapter 2, the situation is that Jesus and Mary and the disciples, they find themselves at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And one of these, a great social blunder occurs. They run out of wine while at the, at the, the wedding. And while they're there running out of wine, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, we're out of wine. And so what, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the water pots that were used for the, the cleansing, uh, ritual cleansing in the Jewish customs, and he takes the water that's in there and he turns it into wine. He graciously met the material and the social needs in the moment for those people. Who were they? We don't know. Who was the bride? We don't know. Who was the groom? We don't. Jesus knew them. We don't know them. It's, it's never even brought out. It, it, all it says is that this was a situation. He met, he met that need. What's interesting is that when we look at these passages, do we just find ourselves more worried about, oh, did Jesus make alcoholic wine or not alcoholic wine? Oh, what? look at the way he talked to his mother. And we, we get into those, and those are important issues for us to wrestle through. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we miss that Jesus simply met a great need at that moment for some people that he knew. That were in a situation that the groom and his family would not have lived down that social guffaw for their life. To have a, a wedding feast and to run out of wine would not have been something that they would have lived down. And look at, look at what he... So he meets this need of grace. And look at how Jesus moves into the concept of truth. Did you catch it down in verse, uh, verse 11, verse 10? You're not going to. There's nothing. Jesus did nothing but 
meet a gracious need at the moment. There is belief by the disciples. They recognized who Jesus was. They began to understand who he was a little bit more. But there's no sermon. There is no going out and teaching. There is no going and looking and following up on these individuals. He simply met a gracious need that needed to be met for somebody that he cared about. There was grace, and at this moment, there was no truth that we have recorded. John chapter 2, we get the second sign miracle. The healing of the nobleman's son. Jesus leaves Cana Galilee, goes to Jerusalem. On his way back to Jerusalem toward Cana, after going through Samaria in John chapter 4, he's finding his way back to Cana, and there's a nobleman who's come from Capernaum, about 16 miles away. He goes to, to find Jesus because his son is dying, and he is hoping and praying that Jesus will heal him. And he looks, he looks to Jesus and he finds, he says, you have to come back with me. You have to come back with me so that my son can be healed. And Jesus, Jesus is going to look at him and he, he says down in a, a verse number 48, he looks at the man and he says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman says to him, sir, come down here, my child die. And Jesus said to him, go, go your way. Your son lives. What does he do? He, he tells the man to go. The man goes. He heals the nobleman's son. And Jesus graciously met the personal and emotional needs of the nobleman and his family. Now, granted, I can't, I can't heal somebody like that. I know that. But can I meet physical, can I meet emotional, social needs for people who are going through grief? Absolutely. To spend time, to listen to them, to talk with them. When they're going through a funeral, to, to actually come and to, to share condolences and to care about those individuals at work when a coworker dies or their family member dies. To look to say, I need to be involved in helping meet that emotional, that spiritual need in that man's life. What, what sermon was given? Now, Jesus gives us a little nugget of truth. He says that faith is possible without signs and wonders which is important for us because we don't have to say, well, if I could see a person raised from the dead or if I could see the water turn the wine, then I would believe. Jesus says, no, you don't have to see that. You just have to believe. You have to have faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ. He says that it is possible to to do that without signs and wonders. You fast forward a little bit to the next sign that Jesus lays out in John chapter 5. John lays it out and he says there's, there's a time when Jesus is walking through the streets and he, he finds his way uh, going down to Jerusalem and there was a man uh, in Jerusalem by a market at a pool which was called Bethesda and there were five porches there and what was there is this man was lame for 38 years of his life. And as he's lame, he's not able to do anything. He finds himself at this pool. Now, whether there was miraculous healing that happened at this pool or it was just superstition, we, we don't totally know. It seems like maybe there was something miraculous happened if somebody got into the pool, the first one when the water would move, that they would be healed. And Jesus comes to this man, he says, would you be made whole? And he's like, I, I can't. I don't have anybody who'd help me. Every time I try to crawl my way over to get into the pool, somebody's already beat me to it. There's, there's nothing that I, could, I can do in and of myself. I have nobody who will help in my circumstances of life that are, that are too difficult for me to have. And Jesus looks at him in verse number 8. And he says to this man who's lame, he says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
So Jesus did not demand faith at this point, which is interesting. But he does demand compliance. He says, this is the way it's going to be if you're going to do this. He wouldn't have healed the man against his will. But he allows the man to be healed when the man actually, it says immediately he was strengthened. He had the ability to walk. The atrophied muscles are given strength. And now he is able to walk. And Jesus graciously in a miraculous and divine way meets the physical and medical needs of this individual. And he looks at the man and he's going to, he's going to move into this idea of teaching. What does he do? Notice, notice down in verse 13 that this man did not know who Jesus was. Because they came to him and they said, And he that healed thee, did you not know who it was? For Jesus had, not convey, had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Jesus healed the man, met his needs, and what did he do? He left. He didn't say, I healed you, now listen to my sermon. You need to hear the truth. Now, did Jesus want to get to the truth? Absolutely. 100%. But he did meet these needs that this individual had. And he goes later on, and then verse 14, afterward, Jesus finds a man in the temple, and he said to him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole, and therefore the Jews did persecute Jesus, and they sought to slay him, because they were the Jewish leaders were beginning to catch who Jesus was, that he was someone of great power and authority, and they wanted to squelch that. They wanted to put it down. But it's interesting to me that Jesus at this time doesn't just leave the gracious act, but he comes back almost like a follow-up visit to these individuals and says, hey, I want to talk to you a little bit more about what has happened. To look and say, we need to be about that. We need to be about following up people who visit our church. We need to be about following up people who visit VBS. Not just the pastors. When we show up at a house, a lot of times people just expect, oh, you're doing your job. When you show up, you've graciously taken time out of your busy schedule to say, this is important. We want to be about that. Following up after neighborhood night for people who come and visit. We'd love to be able to have people who would go out and share the good news, going up and following afterwards. You fast forward a little bit more into Jesus' ministry. The next sign that John records, probably the most familiar of the signs, is the feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, you find that people were following Jesus. They were, they were with him, with him, with him. They were hungry, 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 and they wanted some food. But nobody had enough food for 5,000 men, probably about 10,000 plus people who were following him at that moment. It's interesting to note the response of the disciples. They look at this overwhelming task, the grace that needs to be demonstrated to their world, even as we as believers, I think we find ourselves knowing that there are things to be done in the world that we need to help with, to graciously show, and we look at especially the task of evangelism, and we come up with some of the same excuses that they do. We're empathetic for their plight, but we feel helpless. What can we do among so many people? We can't really make an impact. We don't have enough, we don't have enough money. Peter, uh, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says, Hey, there's, there's a lad, uh, Philip, in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus asked. And he's, he said, Well, we have 200 penny worth in verse 7. And that's not sufficient for all of them. We, we, we don't have the ability. There's a little boy, Andrew says, but what, what's the five loaves and two fish among so many people? Mark chapter 6, they actually, disciples say, let's just send them home. Because they can fend for themselves, we really can't do anything about it. And don't we find ourselves just using some of those same excuses for not taking time to be gracious to the people around us? 
to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family. We need to be about showing grace with the idea of getting to truth. The sign, Jesus takes those, those loaves. Verse 11, it's interesting. It says, and he gave them, gave thanks. And then he breaks the bread and that's it. He doesn't stand up here and say, okay, let me, let me demonstrate to you before I give you this. Let me explain to you the full gospel of what I'm here to do. He's like, there's a huge need that needs to be met. Let's get the people some food. You know how it is. It gets to 1145 and you're like, all right, finish up, man. I'm hungry. I'm not listening to anything else you're saying. They're, they're at that same point. They're wondering, they're wanting. And so Jesus gives thanks. He graciously meets their physical and material needs of these people. But he's not going to stay there. Look at the sermon. The sermon then becomes the bread of life discourse. Notice in verses 22 through 59, he's going to use this great object lesson of, I am the bread of life. You've just eaten this bread. But did you catch something in the passage? There's something that we tend to skip over. I've done it multiple times when I preach through this passage. Say, look, Jesus gave him the bread, and then he talks about how he's the bread of life. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says that after they took up the bread and they did this, Jesus therefore perceived that they were going to take him by force and make him king. So he departs into a mountain by himself alone. And then he's going to go, the disciples are going to go. Now verse 22, you're going to find out that it's the next day that the people who were seeking, that those who had experienced the sign, the wonder, They came seeking after Christ. Now, Jesus is going to rebuke them because they're just looking for another sign. But then at that point, he's going to share truth. He's looking for that now time when people who he's demonstrated grace with, he shares the truth. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't back away and say, well, maybe some other time. Patience is important, but procrastination can be damning. And we need to realize that we need to not be procrastinating. When opportunities arise, people are seeking, they're asking about the gospel. Don't shrink away and say somebody else can do that. But rather, we need to be about sharing that gospel. The next sign that occurs, the the fifth sign, John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. This is my favorite of the sign miracles because I believe it's extremely comical. Uh, there's a man, he's born blind. The, Jew, uh, the, the disciples are looking and saying, hey, what's, what's this guy done that he is uh, born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents? And, he, and Jesus says, neither. But that the glory of God might be made manifest. That the total package, the sum of Jesus Christ, showing that he is God in the flesh is going to be demonstrated. And Jesus reaches down, he spits on the ground, he makes the clay, sticks it on the guy's eyes, he says, go and wash. I know for, we look and we're just like, that is gross. But we know that saliva, they believe have medicinal healing properties, it wasn't, so it wasn't as gross to them as it was to us. So, so you have this man who's blind since birth, and he says in verse number 11, when they ask what happened, he says, well, this is what Jesus told me to do. He says, I went, I washed, and I saw. What did he see? That from darkness to light, Remember all the, the songs we were singing this morning and, and looking back to Isaiah? The, 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 the blind are going to be able to see. The deaf are going to be able to hear. The lame are going to be able to walk. Jesus is continually filling those messianic prophecies, showing that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to save people from their sin. So what does he do? When Jesus heals this man, the people come to him and say, well, who is he? Where did he go? He's, I don't know. And, and, and to me, it's comical because they're asking a blind man or who was previously born, which way did Jesus go? Uh, hello? He, he doesn't know. He, he just knows that he can now see. And he, he rehearses that multiple times through the passage. 
And as he goes through, you find yourself at the end of chapter 9, the Pharisees and the religious leaders get so frustrated with him. In verse number 35, they actually excommunicate him from the synagogue. They put him out. He is now a social outcast. He is a spiritual outcast. He's not, he was before because he, he was blind, but now he's not going to be able to work. He's not going to be able to buy. He can't worship. And what does Jesus do? He comes to this man who is hurting, who is lonely, who is in despair, and he's going to talk with him, and he's going to teach them, teach him, and spend time communicating with him. And he says, do you believe the Son of God? Verse 35, after they had cast him out, and he says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? This shows that him going and being washed and being able to see was not his, his salvation moment, was not the moment that he came to trust Jesus Christ. It came a little bit later in the process because Jesus is now looking and he's like, I don't know who to believe in. But, and Jesus looks and says, you, you see him? And he's the one standing in front of you. It, it's me. And he says, would you believe in him? And he says, Lord, I believe, verse 38. And he worshiped Jesus Christ. And so Jesus at that point is able to help him in belief, showing him the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came not just to simply give us a great bedtime story of somebody dying on the cross and rising again. He came with the purpose to save you and me and to save our friends and to save our neighborhood and to save this community and to save this world. But if we simply sit idly by and do not share the truth and we're just happy meeting needs and we're just happy letting someone else do it, we are not doing our biblical responsibility. And we are by default sinning before God because we are called to share the gospel. He gives this man who has no security anymore he gives him hope. Verse chapter 10 is all about the good shepherd, that he knows his sheep, that he cares for his sheep. He says, you are secure in me. The last sign that John gives, it's, it's the big one. His friend is dead. His friend Lazarus has now been dead, and he is stinking dead, as Mary and Martha says later. He's, he's, he's gone. He's been four days. You, Lord, don't, don't open that tombstone up. But Jesus says, it's good that I was away. And as he's, as he's going through, he raises Lazarus from the dead, showing that he has the power over death and the power over life. And he graciously meets the emotional and, and spiritual needs, not of Lazarus. I believe that's one of the reasons Jesus wept in verse 1135, is he knew what he was bringing Lazarus back from. He met the emotional needs of Mary and Martha. They were hurting. They missed their brother. How are they going to be supported? How are they going to be able to fend for themselves in their society? What's interesting about the sermon is Jesus, by this point in his ministry, his grace, his power, his love for people has been established. He doesn't even wait till the end. He's integrating truth. He's teaching all the way through this, this account. He's looking at his disciples and saying, it's good that I was away, and here's why. He looks at Mary and Martha. He looks at Martha when she's like, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And he says, whoa, whoa, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He points to something greater. He points to the truth of Scripture after he is graciously met and while he is meeting people's needs. As our grace is established, as the relationships of your life are established, we need to be moving it into spiritual conversation. If we truly believe that the gospel is true and that people need Jesus Christ as their Savior, we need to be turning it into spiritual conversations. But it starts often with good relationships and building foundations, not just walking across to our neighbor for 
for the very first time we meet him and say, hey, by the way, you're damn going to hell and you need Jesus Christ. Are there times that you have a short time and you want to get the gospel in? Absolutely. And you take those opportunities. But a lot of times it's really important for us in our society today, in a skeptical society toward religion, toward God, toward Christians, that we demonstrate the grace of God and share the truth with the intent of sharing the truth. So what are some spiritual evangelistic principles concerning grace and truth that we can take from all of that quickly? First of all, Christ looked beyond earthly needs to point out heavenly needs. The signs, the purpose was to share the truth. Folks, we need to be about meeting people's needs. We need to be about helping people. We need to be about grace. We need to be about showing kindness randomly and planned. We need to be about that as believers and as a church. But we need to look beyond that to say there's a greater need that people have. And we need to be about sharing the gospel. Though he was about pointing heavenly needs, there are times that Christ did care for the earthly needs of others. He, he gave people wine at a wedding, nothing else out of it. He fed people, 5,000 plus people, and many of them turned in unbelief, didn't even come back to hear him the second day. They just enjoyed the graciousness of God. We need to be about helping people. At times, Christ met earthly needs and did not address heavenly needs. We saw that through a couple of the first signs at the beginning. Do you remember the, the first two signs? He doesn't, he doesn't address. Even with the nobleman's son, he gives a little, uh, a little perspective on it, but he doesn't initially right away meet, uh, talk about the heavenly needs. You should not feel guilty. If you spend time with your neighbor and you don't get to share the gospel. You should not feel guilty about that. However, if you're 10 years down the road, you're a year down the road, and you've met with your neighbor multiple times and you've never shared the gospel, there ought to be some guilt in our lives. If we have family that we have developed relationships with and we have never shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the power of God unto salvation, we ought to feel guilty about that because we're not doing what Jesus Christ demanded us, demands of us. But there are going to be times where you're, you're simply helping out a neighbor. It took me 10 years. You know it, Sterling. 10 years of just being a neighbor to the guy who doesn't stop talking to me. It was awesome. But it took 10 years to get, get to that point where he finally accepted Jesus Christ. But he'll tell you, we have multiple, multiple conversations about it. We need to be doing that. We need to be looking to move beyond. Christ understood that others would hear testimony of his kindness and power, which would provide opportunities for future ministry. It's one of the reasons we do neighborhood night. Is neighborhood night the end of evangelism? No. And I'm just going to be very honest and very forthright. If you believe because you've done evangelism or done neighborhood night or you made cupcakes for a neighborhood night or you made chili for neighborhood night, you can check off your evangelism quota for the year. No. No, you have not. Are we thankful for you doing that? Absolutely. But we should be doing more. If we truly believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ and what it has done to change us, we need to move beyond looking for opportunities, knowing that it's going to happen. Jesus understood that sympathy was not a substitute for service. There were multiple times he had empathy toward people. So what does he do? He met their needs. 
He doesn't just look and say, you know what? You're right, Pastor. We need to do neighborhood night. Translation, you and some other people in church need to do neighborhood night. We need to have an evangelism program. That's right. Translation, you and other people and Pastor Kim, they need to do that. Not me. We have sympathy for missions. We need to be about missions and helping missionaries, but don't send me. That's for other people. We cannot just be sympathetic toward a plight and do nothing. Grace is active. Sharing the truth is active. We, as a body of believers, must be intentional with our lives. What are we here to do? We are here to glorify our God, which is in heaven. And doing that by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by living a righteous and a gracious and holy life that is truth-filled and is truth-sharing. We need to go out. We need to be about this. Jesus knew that graciousness often preceded conversion. That the gracious acts, the relationships that you're building ought to be with intent to share the gospel. Because it demonstrates as you cultivate a relationship with a friend. Why am I doing that? Because they're a great person. You love to be with them. You enjoy the time with them. And you, you begin to develop and deepen that relationship so much that you say, They need to hear about Jesus Christ. They need to know what I know from the word of God about what Jesus Christ has done for me. And we need to be about showing that, the truth as well as the grace. Jesus intentionally followed up on those he'd been gracious. I alluded to it. We need some help. We need to follow up still on some of our VBS children who came. We need to follow up in a couple weeks on people who visited for neighborhood night. We need to follow up on individuals who who come to the church. And to just be honest, there's more than, than a couple of us on staff can handle. Are we about the truth of God? Or are we just going to be, hey, we're great, we're glad you came. We, we need to do this. We, we need to be about grace and truth. We need to wrestle with the paradox. And looking and saying, this is important. It amazes me still that we have 500 people here this morning and we still can't get 100 people to help with an event that shows the grace to our neighborhood. That we still, truthfully, we're cutting back on neighborhood night this year because we don't have enough people to help us. That baffles me. It, it, it makes no sense, to be quite honest. It makes no sense that we can't get people to come out and share, just in a, in a, a gracious, happy environment. A relaxed time with the intent of building opportunities into our community. And it has. We have had multiple people come to this church as a result of Neighborhood Night. It's just a gracious way for us to interact with our community. What will you do? When we look at this idea of grace and truth, moving it beyond. And if you, if you want to help in Neighborhood Night, great. Please come tonight, 545 meeting. That's my quick promo. Um, what will you do? Maybe it's time as a believer that you start to look and show grace and begin to cultivate relationships with your neighbors, with your friends, with your coworkers, with long-term intent of sharing the truth. Maybe you've built up some relationships and now it's time to stop procrastinating and start to share the gospel truth that is so important. Maybe you need to sign up and help with Neighborhood Night, a great opportunity of reaching out in grace. 
to show the love of Christ and to look and to say, and we're doing something different this year. We have some ministry areas where we're going to share and we're going to have people designed there, ready to answer questions, looking and saying, hey, you have questions about our church here. Let me walk you over to this area. There's some people who love to talk with you. Being intentional, saying we want neighborhood night. We've, we've established in our community with neighborhood night some grace. They know that it's going to happen. We need to start as a, belie- a body of believers sharing and uh, committing the truth to people as they're coming and we're talking with them on that evening. Maybe you need to help commit doing some follow-up visits to look and to let Pastor Kim or myself know and say, hey, we're willing to help with some of the follow-up calls. Some of you used to do it all the time, but you haven't anymore. Why? What's changed? What's different? Because the person you don't like or you liked isn't leading it anymore? So because he retired or he's not here, you're not going to help? Or are we going to look and say, no, this is what God wants me to do, to be actively involved in sharing and presenting the truth. Maybe you're here today and you've heard all this, and, and for the first time you're, you're beginning to understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he graciously provided the truth of salvation for any and all who would come to him with a repentant heart. Maybe you need to get saved today. Maybe you need to ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. You know, it's interesting to me that we look at our missionaries and I love our missionaries and so many of you do too. And if you take the time to look at our missionaries and look at what they do on a consistent basis, we know they're about the truth, right? We wouldn't support them if they weren't about the truth. But take Tom Latham. Why does he make donuts? Because it's just a gracious way to get opportunities to build relationships. Why does he do wrestling, setting up mats and doing that? Why? Because it establishes a moment of grace, an opportunity to present the truth of Scripture. Why does Scott Murphy pick up, pick up Indian, Native Americans who are, uh, who are drunk on the side of the road or show up at his house and bang on his door and say, Hey, Pastor Scott, can you give me a ride back to the reservation? I'm drunk or I'm high. Why does he do that? Why does he he help with that? Because it gives him an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel. Why would Steve Burkholder drill a well? Or why would he start a school to, to educate the children in Tanzania? Why? Because it's a gracious need that needs to be met in order to share the truth of the gospel. Why would why would Alan Newton play rugby? I have no clue why he would do that. We know the re- why would he why would he, he sang in a sang in a choir, he played in a concert band. Why did he do all those things? It was to meet people, it was to develop relationships so that he could share the truth of the gospel. We could continue to go through our missionaries and look at the way they're doing that. Maybe we need to take a page from their playbook and say, we need to be about building relationships. We need to be about looking for opportunities to interact with the unsaved. We need to be about, as a church, looking for ways to graciously help and meet people's needs so that we can share the truth with them. Did you read Toby Stevens' uh, newsletter this week? I don't know if if you haven't got it. See if you can get a copy of it. Maybe we'll put it out tonight so you can read through it multiple conversations and ministries, one after another after another, that he's doing things and he's having all these unique opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's spending time with people. He's building and cultivating relationships of grace so that he can share the truth. Maybe it's time for us to be a missionary every day. Here, the heart of our mission is to be missions. The heart of our Savior was to come to seek and to save those who were lost. Are we doing it? I truly believe as we look, we could do better.
we ought to do better. We have opportunities. Take advantage of those. Take advantage of the relationships that you have. Be committed to the gospel. Because Jesus Christ did not just come full of grace. He did not come full of truth. He came full of both. And we are to be full of grace and truth so that we can share the gospel with people who need to hear. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to truly be people who demonstrate and show the grace that you've so freely given to us. Lord, I thank you that you sent people into my life to share the gospel. Lord, I'm thankful for the many here who've had that exact same experience where the reason they came to this church, the reason they got saved was because of a relationship they had or something somebody did for them. Lord, help us to be about meeting people's needs and helping people and help us build relationships. But Lord, help us not to shirk away from the truth of the gospel. With heads bowed and eyes closed, as the instrumentalist begins to play, we're going to do something we do every week on a consistent basis. You're here today. Maybe you're saying, you know what, for the first time, I, I really, I'm convinced. I don't know God. I'm not saved. And I need to ask Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins. Our staff is headed over to the, to the doors on your right-hand side, my left. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I want to find out how I can accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Let me encourage you. Head over there. They'll take the time in a private location to show you from the Bible how you can know you're on your way to heaven. They will take the time to answer questions you may have about Jesus Christ. If you'd like to do that, let me encourage you. You can go now. For those of you who are here and you're saved, how are you doing? Do you find yourself on one extreme or the other? Or do you find yourself looking and saying, I need my life to be about grace and truth. I need to be about sharing this wonderful message of Jesus Christ. He is the power of salvation. Can you do better? Sure we can. Let's commit as a body to say we are going to be about sharing grace and truth. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body to be concerned, not just sympathetic, but Lord, actively involved in reaching out to people. Help us not to just be a, a, a good old boys club that just comes here on Sunday and meets and we go our ways. Lord, help us to be intentional about the gospel. Help us to be intentionally meeting and helping people to be gracious but truth-filled believers. Lord, thank you for sending Christ to save me of my sins. And for the many here you've done that, I know they say thank you as well. In your name we pray. Amen.